This week on Death of the Reader. Haven't you got any ideas at all, Vance? It's movie night. It's a maze of conflicting clues. Any one of seven people might have done it. As we tackle... But we couldn't convict seven people, Mr. Vance. The Kennel Murder Case. You couldn't convict one with the evidence you've got. You're listening to Death of the Reader on 2SER. We are Flex and Herds, and this is your Murder Mystery World Tour. This week, Herds, we're doing something special. This is the most special episode. This might be the most special episode so far. We're not doing a book. We're doing a movie. An entire film. Uh, back from the, the good old days when movies weren't all two hours long. This one's a tasty, about 70-ish minutes long. It's pretty good. Yes. If you've been struggling to keep up with all of the books, if you've mm-hmm. been thinking to yourself, goodness, reading a book every three weeks is too much for me. Well, too this, much is, effort. this is your week to catch up mm-hmm. or get ahead of the pack and read the book that this movie is based off. We are yeah. talking The Kennel Murder Case by S.S. Van Dyne, mm-hmm. the film adaptation starring William Powell mm-hmm. from 1933. Mm. If you haven't heard us discuss the Benson case, don't worry. Catch a, a spoiler chat as a bonus episode on the podcast. We're going to start this episode with what is effectively a movie review, <laughs> um, and that should be good fun. Are we qualified for this? I think so. I, I completely disagree, but we're going to do it anyway. And then towards the end of the show, we will be doing our regular nonsense yeah. with, uh, with figuring out how this puzzle is done. Yeah. Let's get into this, Herds. I loved this movie. It was a good time. I had some popcorn. I popped it in the microwave. I got myself sat down and I watched the movie in the, in the loving arms of, of, of my salty treats. Um, yeah, I sat down and watched it all in one sitting, and I enjoyed every minute of it. I don't think there was an unnecessary scene or anything too terrible in it. I loved the transitions that the movie threw at me. There was all sorts of fun stuff going on there. It was a very efficient movie, very clever, and I, I was along for the ride the whole mm. time. There wasn't ever a moment where I was taken out and thought to myself, wait, what, what just happened? I think the thing I lost track of most often was who was who because everyone's wearing the same outfit and it's all black and white, so it's extremely hard to distinguish who's who. This is one of those fun differences between uh, you know, a book and a movie that with a movie, we're, we're told what they look like. There were some characters that I could pick out immediately. Markham, never, I never lost track of Markham. And the Doctor, when he showed up, he was fantastic. He had some of the best comedy bits in the whole movie. Um, and Vance, obviously, because he's, he's Vance. He can't lose Vance. That's impossible. Uh, one of the most interesting kind of details to separate the book from the movie was that we didn't have Van Dyne's kind of perspective. On. We didn't have the author in the movie. No, adaptation. we didn't. Oh goodness! So his ego is immediately deflated, that's which is you, very sad. That's how you know this adaptation is just lost, gone to the wind. I know it's basically a completely different story from what I hear. <laughs> I thought I thought it was really excellent. I think that losing the first person perspective of Van Dyne makes a lot of sense for the movies. Obviously, mm. this was a franchise of movies, so that's something that they did for the whole series, and I think it worked excellently. Yeah, Vance is still the same character, but I really mm. love William Powell's portrayal of him. Yeah, he's cheery, and he's kind of like you still get the idea that he's just an upper classman along for the ride with the police. He has class, but you know he's along for the ride, and he's bringing everyone with him. Whereas mm. in the books, it feels like he's leaving everyone behind. He's much more of a shepherd yes. in this movie he's showing people things and kind of hanging around in the background and he doesn't even no spoilers yet but he he doesn't even you know tackle the culprit to the ground and put handcuffs on them and say i did it i did everything we obviously interpreted the character very differently to how it's portrayed on screen yeah and is that on us is that on them yeah is it up to william powell's endless charisma indeed indeed 
I think one of the other things, and we'll talk about this coming up a bit later on the show with Dr. Mike Grost about the Van Dyne School of Detective Fiction, mm. but the other thing that was really interesting about this story is the way that it treats Leong, the Chinese cook, um, yes. who is one of the suspects in the case, but it treats him with a great deal of respect and dignity, which apparently wasn't actually commonplace back in the day. Like, it feels totally normal to us now, but yeah. supposedly that was a big cultural shift in that moment. It's such a good way of humanizing the character and making them seem like a real person. It might be my favorite scene. Maybe my second favorite. My favorite is the model. I will say my, my favorite <laughs> scene did still involve Leong, which is when William Powell is testing out one of the tricks that he thinks makes yes. the entire crime work. And Leong walks in to clean the room while he's doing it. And when Leong exits the room, William Powell just follows the door exactly and goes right back to what he was doing. Yeah. Like it, it's very Chaplin. Yes. It's very Charlie Chaplin. The way that the motion flows throughout this whole movie yeah. has that beautiful charm of old cinema where they were just trying things for fun. Yeah. And it, it works. There is an incredible sense of pace in this movie, the way that this, each scene flows into the other. There, there are so many lovely tricks that the, that the director has used to keep the action flowing and to keep us sort of in the moment, um, especially where we're setting up the crime scene at the very end and, uh, and William Powell is giving us his narration on how the crime was carried out. Gentlemen, I think I can fit the pieces of this jigsaw puzzle together. Now let's have a look inside. To say nothing of how the solution works, the way that it's presented visually is gorgeous. Yeah. They bring out this model of the two oh. buildings that the crime is set in, seemingly out of nowhere, and the shot is framed, so it seems like an exterior shot, but yes. then someone just walks in the background, and it zooms out, and you can see them all standing around this model. Lex, I want to tell you right now, that scene favorite scene in the whole movie, yeah. I was totally 100% engaged when we had that reveal of the model. Ah, oh, who built that? Why does Vance have one? You know? <laughs> What's yeah. happening in that scene? I don't care. It's beautiful. I feel like they probably just made it because getting exterior shots in the city of New York would have been too difficult. And yeah. then they were like, well, why don't we just actually use it? Use it? You're absolutely correct. Like, that's a that's a trick that we see in, you know, films like Star Wars, where they, for the little TIE fighters and ships and things that need to blow up, they use little models. But why not just show it as an actual model in the film? That's ingenious. I love it. Of course, Having said that this movie does mm. pacing well, uses everything very efficiently, there is one thing I feel is maybe a bit underutilized. What's that, Flex? That is the dog show itself, the setup for ah. the kennel murder case. Yeah, it is a bit strange that we we start off with all of these competitors and Philo Vance is involved and we get to find out how fantastic his his dog is. Yes, Philo Vance is apparently <laughs> the best dog raiser in the country. Apparently, because but he doesn't win. He is. This is number 292, Captain McCavish, shown by the owner, tail up, the well-known fancier, Mr. Philo Vance, whose kennel comprises some of the finest campaigners in America. But he doesn't win, so justice is served yes. for the audience. But um, It's after, to humble him, obviously. Yeah, but after we get the initial murder of Thomas McDonald's dog it just kind of drops the dogs yeah. all the way until the end can i tell you what i thought this movie was going to be based on the premise tell me i thought that it was going to be that one of the dogs died and we had to figure out who killed the dog but it was it was just the dog died and then we moved on which is very sad um it gets the movie on did the dog die.com at least point is there are dogs but the dogs don't really matter to the story very much yeah um, which is strange. You've got this set piece and you don't utilize it. Like, why is the murder in our house well, when you have a showground with all of these tools that are used in the show? Like, I what about a dog collar or like, I don't know. I don't have a problem with that. I do. What <laughs> I have a problem with is that it sets it up and then the only time that the dogs ever become relevant again <laughs> is right at the end when Captain <laughs> McTavish walks into the house and solves the crime for Vance. 
Let's be clear here. They film that dog going the whole way up the stairs, the whole way back down. Why do they film it going up the stairs? No one knows. Why do they film it going down the stairs? Did we need to see every step that that dog took in that house? It's Look, ludicrous. This is why I think that one of Vance's rules should be just, there should be no animals in this case at all. Just no animals. Just keep them out of here. Well, I would argue the case that... <laughs> That animals probably fall under the same rule as servants, where they're not <laughs> persons of note. I see. But still, I don't know. It, it's not, it, of all of the weak points that this movie could have had, it's not a particularly egregious no. one. Um, th- this is, yeah, like we should be clear here. This is a very well put together movie. It's just strange that there's this one plot point of there being a dog show and the dog show does not seem to matter. Like ultimately, this movie is remembered by many as mm. one of the greatest golden age murder mystery adaptations for the silver screen ever william k everson said that it was a masterpiece and considers it one of the top two movies of all time in murder mystery genre so you don't just have to take our opinion for it there is you know backup out there there are actual reputable human beings who believe in in this movie yes i don't know whether this is the best philo vance story out of the entire franchise Mm. but i loved this movie and i think you should check it out well maybe that's a challenge go read and watch every single file events novel and movie and the other adaptations i know there's at least one other uh kennel murder case adaptation go watch and read all of them and let us know which one's the best <laughs> good luck <laughs> this is death of the reader up next we are talking with dr mike Grost about the van dyne school of writers stick around You're listening to Death of the Reader on 2SER. We are Flex and Herds, and joining us today is Dr. Mike Gross, a murder mystery enthusiast and author of one of the best online databases for mystery fiction, which has been invaluable. Mike, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Now, if you're not familiar with Mike's work, his personal website contains information on anything and everything detective fiction, and as I said, has been utterly invaluable to us in tracing the connections between authors on our murder mystery world tour. Mm -hmm. Mike, how did you first get involved in chronicling the complexities of mystery fiction? I started reading mystery fiction when I was a little boy in the 1960s, and I bought a lot of used books, and one of them was S.S. Van Dyne's The World's Great Detective Stories, and the 35-page introduction to that is a uh, the first history of mystery fiction, the pioneering history from 1928. And I was fascinated, and I thought, wow, I want to learn more about the history of mystery fiction. And when I grew up, I was inspired to try to write a modern-day history of mystery fiction, directly inspired by uh, today's author, S.S. Van Dyne. Uh, Now, Mike, Van Dyne's fiction focused on these 300-page murder mysteries with complex plots. What stands out to you as the greatest strength of the man's construction of his stories? I think it's a... It's a very elaborate form of storytelling where he has, as you say, very complex plot and every detail falls into a logical place there. And the whole thing is like a piece of music where you start out and you develop themes and the story progresses logically and bit by bit, hundreds and eventually thousands of little pieces and details are all put into a mosaic, sort of like you would find in a symphony or opera. I have to ask, Mike, uh, you're giving me a lot of praise. Does the man have any flaws? Yes. I would say some of the books are not very good. The casino murder case is very weak. There is snobism in his work. He uh, made his hero be well. Wealthy, 
and I, most of the PP influence didn't do that. Uh, they had uh, more uh, middle-class detectives generally in the people he influenced. But my opinion is that S.S. Van Dyne was a major figure in our uh, modern culture, and uh, he's underrated right now as a writer. Yeah. Now, as you say, many authors take influence from Van Dyne, even though he's kind of been forgotten by the rest of history. As a member of what you call the uh, Van Dyne School of Detective Fiction, authors such as Ellery Queen, Stuart Palmer, Rex Stout, all took inspiration from his works. What are some of the common themes within that school of authors that stand out to you? One thing is that they have a typical plan where there's an amateur detective who's a genius and very good at pure reasoning and thinking, and that amateur detective works in close, happy collaboration with the police. And that's not a plan for a realistic detective novel, but as far as an entertaining, well-constructed mystery story, you could hardly beat it as a plan. Another is the fact that the Van Dyne books and the successors tend to have some sort of background set against either intellectuals or people in the entertainment industry considered broadly. So you have a sort of entertainment for people who are interested in the intellectual world. Yeah, I remember speaking to uh, Simon Brett, a modern detective fiction author, who said something very similar in that a lot of his work reflects his interest in show business these days. Yes, very much so. And probably the ancestor to that, I can't speak for Simon Brett, who is a talented writer, a very prolific, talented writer, but my guess is probably somewhere in his ancestry as a Van Dyne influence, because Van Dyne was the person who uh, put this sort of approach on the map. There's some other things in the Van Dyne school. There tends to be a lot of interest in the time of the murder and the movement of suspects uh, around the murder scene. And these are often linked to uh, interesting architecture and interesting maps of cities and and city streets. And you can see this in the, the kennel. Uh, murder mystery. It takes place in a New York brownstone. Uh, There's two floor maps of the two main floors of the brownstone. And there's also a map of the city street outside in the intricate pattern of buildings, gates, vacant lots, and paths which connect everything up. A couple other things. They're not the only people to include impossible crimes in locked rooms, but they sure included a lot of them in their writings and some real doozies. And uh, there's a nice standard locked room mystery in the kid in uh, the kennel murder case we're talking about mm. so uh, there's been an interest in sometimes bizarre murder methods it's a sort of surrealism that uh, often pops up in uh, both the undying school writers and some other schools of contemporary mystery fiction mm. how do you how do you find from an author's perspective authors can balance having those complex surrealist puzzles which can be really difficult to figure out and making the stories accessible for their audience without you know leaving them out in the cold fretting about at what time the train arrived at the station uh, that you have to write very clearly and uh, Van Dyne is a very clear writer. I've never been confused by any of his books. And most of the people who were who wrote in the Van Dyne School were very clear professional writers. Writing mystery fiction is a difficult thing. Its, op- its skill level has often been underestimated by people. It's amazing to me that so many people were able to do this over the past 200 years. Another detail of the Van Dyne School of Murder Mystery Fiction that you mentioned on your website is that a lot of authors contributed passages of their prose towards early social movements, such as in the Kennel Murder case, uh, 
Philo Vance's treatment of Leung the cook, and also later on in a book that we're going to be covering coming down the line, Too Many Cooks, uh, the treatment of other minorities. Why is it you think that the authors of detective fiction were so forwards in putting this social commentary into their stories that many people just considered to be about the puzzle? I cover on my website 45 members of the Ben Dine School. It was a huge school and very popular. Uh, many of these people were political liberals who had a strong personal belief in civil rights and the equality of the races. And uh, you certainly see that in Van Dyne. And the, as you say, with Liang the Cook, I, the book goes out of the way in the final interview, which uh, Philo Vance, the detective, conducts with Liang. The, the writer says that uh, Vance addressed Liang as an equal. Uh, he treated him with, it's he mentioned that he treated him respectfully. He, he told Liang that uh, Liang did exactly what he, Philo Vance, would have done under the same circumstances. But as I say, there's of the 45 uh, Van Dyne School writers I cover, 20 made a, uh, took career risks to include positive treatments of all sorts of minorities, racial minorities, sexual minorities, people, religious minorities. They went all out to do this. And as you mentioned, uh, Rex Stout's Too Many Cooks is a classic example. And I strongly suspect it was influenced by the uh, Kennel murder case, as I say on my website. Hmm. Just a thought. Yeah, definitely. Uh, S.S. Van Dyne was particularly critical of uh, Agatha Christie's works, focusing on her lack of fair play uh, in her mystery construction. We also know that Christie read his works right back. Is this an example of a murder mystery cold war between the two authors? I'm not sure. Uh, Van Dyne's book was published at an era, uh, his major writing on Christie came out, and everybody else came out in 1928, and Christie had only published like four or five books at that time. He is very slighting about her in the book, and I, I think he made a mistake. But it's also true that he hadn't maybe seen most of Christie's best works that hadn't been published at that time. I know from Christie's letters that she read Van Dyne. So it's, uh, and she seems to have admired his work. Van Dyne was very popular in Britain. Most British uh, critics viewed him highly, in my impression at that time, as as one of the best American writers. He was a broad, very broad enthusiast over a very large range of his contemporaries. He usually was not snide or negative, although he was with Christie, but uh, he's usually enthusiastic and admiring. Which is a very different perspective from perhaps what some people portray him as these days, which is very interesting and I guess it unfortunate to some extent. Van Dyne in person, I'm sure, could be difficult. He had problems with substance abuse. He, uh, he had womanizing issues. Uh, he was uh, he could be acerbic to people. Uh, and I, I, I'm not certainly not saying he was a saint. Uh, he did put, I think, the best of himself in his writing. And we have to just to be accepting of that and say, okay, uh, we can be grateful that he accomplished so much as a writer. And uh, I'm not here to sit in judgment on him as a person. I I agree. He's uh, uh, everything I've read about. It makes it sound like he, he could have been a difficult person. Thank you very much, Dr. Mike Gross, for coming on the show. This has been an absolute pleasure speaking with you about Van Dyne, his work and his influences. 
Thank you. It's been great to be invited. I appreciate it. Thanks for chatting. <laughs> and uh, once again, a thank you to Dr. Mike Gross for his online database of murder mystery knowledge. We'll chuck a link up on the podcast and you should absolutely check it out. It is fascinating reading and very well put together. Thank you very much. I appreciate the compliment. This is Death of the Reader. We are Flex and Herds and we'll be back with the Kennel Murder Case in just a sec. Well, we did it again, Mr. Vance. Congratulations, Sergeant. Thank you. I'll certainly mention you in my story to the papers. Thank you. Oh, that's all right, Mr. Vance. You're listening to (laughs) Death of the Reader. We are talking the Kennel Murder Case film adaptation. And, Herds, it's time to talk theories, solutions, and was this puzzle fair? I mean, yes. It was a puzzle. There was a culprit. I will tell you, I did not see it coming. My money was on Brisbane, but that went that went down the toilet very quickly. <laughs> it went right in the closet. I just, I'll tell you my my, my thought process here. It. I wanna I wanna walk you through because I know that there are some murder mysteries out there where the trick is always to find the character who's obsessed with murder mysteries and they're the culprit because yes. that's usually what writers do. So when I saw Brisbane before the movie even happened with the book about murder mysteries, I was like, all right, I got him, I got him. Dead to rights. He's in my sights. Take him down to the pound. Not at all. <laughs> he was dead. He was yeah. dead the entire time. He didn't even kill anyone. He tried to kill someone. He didn't kill anyone. He shot a dead man. He shot that a was dead all man. he achieved. So I caught a man who shot a dead man and something about pans. I mean, he already got his justice. You, you could have made a joke about Vance there. I could have. right in front uh, of you. Sitting right. right there. That's all right. I'll get him next time. No, I, I really love the solution to this story. Yeah. It's clever. It's not exceedingly over the top with all of the evidence that it needs you to look at. No. The thing that I think makes this novel stand out and probably why people like it so much among the Philo Vance collection is that it just gives you a culprit. Yeah. It gives you a culprit so you can feel satisfied that you solved something when you get to the end, even if you didn't get the twist. <laughs> even if it was just really easy to do. It doesn't matter. I, I did really enjoy that, actually. I did enjoy the way that um, S.S. Van Dyne portrayed this situation with not two culprits, but one culprit and one, you know, man who shot a corpse. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but we're given the situation where all of the characters in the story, like these these seven characters, are apparently all have motive for murder. And two of them are involved in the murder, mm. um, which I really like. I, I haven't really read a story that has been has been quite like that, where all of the evidence points to one character. It turns out, oh, well, they got caught in the middle of their murder. It's a solution that you will not go, that's nonsense. That couldn't have happened. It's a yeah. solution that you go, damn, that was right there. And that, I think, is what's most fun about it. Because even in the end, we only have one culprit. He doesn't even break that rule. Let's talk about rules, Herds. Oh, no. Because I got a problem. What's your problem? I got a problem, and the problem starts with the number 20 Uh and the letter E. Uh Uh-huh. Oh, no. The dog? The dog. Let's just quickly go over a particular Van Dyne rule. So, rule 20, I herewith list a few of the devices which no self-respecting detective story writer will now avail himself of. Article E, the dog that does not bark and thereby reveals the fact the intruder is familiar. Okay. Now listen, I understand that the dog attacked someone who was familiar, yes. and thus it is an inversion of the rule. It is an inversion. But clearly, using the dog to identify the culprit goes against Van Dyne's own rules, and I will not stand for it. Well, to be fair, he doesn't just identify the victim. Vance already knows who it is at the point anyway, but it's not 
the victim themselves, but also the situation they're put in. They are logically placed in this situation by being forced to pick up the poker. There's, there's a little bit of a logic game going on there. I know what you're talking about. I think that's a break of the rule. But I mean, we're also dealing with the fact that supposedly the dog is reacting to the poker. Mm-hmm. Because he doesn't react when they're just all in the room together, yeah, which means that it could have been either person, and that th- they then convict the guy on that. Even if you're arguing that that rule is being broken, mm. that is the most human I think that Vance is in the movie because Vance isn't sure how to proceed. Gentlemen, I'm afraid we're completely stopped. Vance, in all the years we've worked together, I never heard you say that before. He's stuck in that moment. You're saying that his infallibility is finally broken? Well, not, I don't know about broken because he's fans <laughs> and nobody can break his absolute perfectness, but he doesn't, he doesn't have a perfect, uh, a perfect conviction of the killer in the end. I mean, I would, argue that, he, I would on... argue that he doesn't after the dog anyway, until no. the confession comes out. I, I, I don't know. I think this is pretty reasonable as this is the, uh, the sixth book in the series. I think that Van Dyne is just showing us that maybe the pretentiousness that we accuse him of isn't as ironclad as we think. The problem that I have with the bending of these rules Mm. Is is more that, you know, I have an image in my head, Herds, and uh-huh. I, I want it to be maintained. I want uh-huh. I want to separate our blessed Father Knox from our blessed SS Van I know. Dyne. I know that. <laughs> I know when Flex... they start to blur the lines and become <laughs> self-aware, it's too much for Look, me. I know that whenever you're presented with two. Uh, two characters, two opposing opinions. You wanna, you wanna see them as being on these opposite sides of this one issue. You know, there's only one way to look at murder mysteries. It's, it's Van Dyne's or it's Knox's. It's Flex or Hertz. <laughs> but sometimes those two opposites, they can come together and they can agree on something. That's absurd. <laughs> Absolutely. Maybe they can. Maybe they can be friends. We'll never agree on anything. (laughs) Maybe we can be friends, Flex. (laughs) Uh, I think the other thing we should talk about now that we brought it up is Nox's rules. Mm. Device X, herds. Device X. I mean, I don't know that I have much of defense for this. This (laughs) String? String is pretty easy to work out. It's just a pulley system. That's not too complex. Do you think that the average reader in 1928 would have had a fair understanding of how pulleys work? (laughs) Not in 1928. Maybe that's micro scale pulleys on sewing thread. <laughs> it was interesting to see uh, a murder mystery that actually uses the replace the lock from the outside trick. I feel like I feel like nowadays that's that very much considered to be foul play. Yeah, and the interesting balance of the defense of this is that on the one side, it's a simple solution with a couple of pulleys that means that you can get the lock open nice and easy, doesn't require much explanation. On the other hand, because that's a simple mechanism that could work on so many doors, Mm. it's like, well, fare thee well, locked room mysteries. Exactly, exactly. This is the problem. If you're going to set up a locked room mystery, then after that solution has been put forward, then you have to say... The detective has to say, well, could it have been a system of pulleys or perhaps a lock pick that has put the lock back in place or something fancy like that? And then you have to then deny it. You have to say, well, there's, there are no lock picks here. There, are, there is no rope. There is no rope near this locked room. Don't worry about it. I've searched the whole town. No one's got any rope or any pulley systems. Just don't worry about it. I will say, at least the film foreshadows it effectively. At least we see the book The Solution comes yes. from. At least we see the text before Vance figures it out. Yes. I'm okay with it in this story, but in the yep. broader context of mystery novels, lock them doors yes. and keep them locked. Yes, this is a this is a good point. Um, you definitely want to set those expectations at the start of the novel. Locked rooms are real things, and trying to puzzle out, you know, who has gone where or what alibi is being used is always the most interesting part of a locked room mystery. Now, the final question, Herds, mm. was this fair? I think so. Absolutely. Yeah. 
I, I think that picking read of our multiple suspects was pretty difficult. Mm. There's no one thing that makes him stand out amongst the cast. Mm. I don't think this story is unfair, but I do think that its solution is unclear. Yeah. I think this might be partially due to the the filmic nature of the story that we're watching because yeah. it is only an hour long. With a with a novel, you have hours upon hours of sitting and reading through things and pouring over minute details. I mean, I'd forgotten who Reed was by the end, and this is partly due to the forgetting which character is which. Um, but yeah, I, I do think that it is fair, especially going over it again and seeing, oh, well, that's where Reed was in this scene. These are the clues that he's dropping around. No, I, it does not ruin the movie for me, but it definitely is not a puzzle that I point at and say that was like one that I really enjoyed solving. It was one I enjoyed experiencing, yeah. but, you know, it, the, the satisfaction comes in you figuring out if it was Brisbane who was involved before they unveil it to you there. Yeah, for sure. Either way, that has been our special on the Kennel Murder Case movie starring William Powell as Philo Vance. Yeah, and we're going to be continuing next week with a, a brand new novel. That <gasps> a I'm, novel, a regular novel. Yeah, a regular old novel. Becoming a movie show. But it is, oh my goodness, I would love to do that, but unfortunately we have all these novels to get through. <laughs> we're going to be continuing with a larger than life uh, legend of, of crime fiction. We're going to be looking at Rex Stout's Too Many Cooks featuring Nero Wolf. Yes. Um, and we're going to be looking at chapters one to six inclusive. I'm very much looking forward to this flex. Yes. The <laughs> one thing I know going into this novel is that it was part of the Van Dyne mm-hmm. School of Writing we spoke with Dr. Mike Grost about earlier on this episode. So maybe we'll see a bit of interesting social commentary in there. Yeah, I hope so. I'm looking forward to the recipes about food. Sorry, what? Next time we will discuss the recipes that were released as a part of this. That sounds fantastic. Yeah, it's a whole promotional thing. I'm excited to talk about it. If you want to catch any other movie content on 2SCR, we have Film Fight Club Wednesdays at 7.30pm. We have Regular Size Kev on Friday Daily. And you can catch our very own Michael Jones on Breakfast with his movie reviews. This has been Death of the Reader. We are Flex and Herds, and we'll see you with too many cooks next week. Next time. <laughs>